What comes to your mind when I say the words mission strategy? Are networks and organizations conjured into your thoughts? Maybe if you're like me, it's a three-step plan or uh, strategy that I learned at a missions conference at one point to use in my neighborhood. Or maybe it's just simply the annual business meeting uh, for your church where funds are distributed and decided upon, given to people who are doing ministry in foreign mission fields uh, that align with similar values. Mission strategy has become a buzzword for many evangelicals, and for good reason, too. After all, we are called to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, It's what we do, or rather what we are supposed to do as Christians. What if I told you that God's primary mission strategy, no, his only mission strategy, was built on trials, suffering, and ultimately death? The Apostle Paul was a man called to be a missionary of sorts. His title, Apostolos, literally means since ones. It was his divinely appointed office. And this apostle was writing a letter to his church, the church he started in Philippi, from a Roman dungeon, betrayed, cursed, beaten, slandered, and chained for the name of Christ. He wrote this letter to his most beloved church, where after an encouraging message of the truth of preserving grace and power in their lives, he goes on to say in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. By what has happened to me, he's referring to nothing short of a complete catastrophe to the eyes of onlookers. Not only was he imprisoned, but he likely faced betrayal from friends, slander, and false accusations from enemies, his public reputation tarnished, horrid physical beatings that left his bodily debilitatingly marred to the sheer joy of his enemies, and now likely a two-year wait in prison before his fate would ultimately be decided by a God-hating ruler who would likely sentence him to death for sharing this gospel that's been advanced. But Paul does not take this opportunity informing the Philippians about his his wretched circumstances to self-pity at all, no. Instead of going on about the effects of his shackles that were had on his own bruised wrist, he tells the Philippians of how his chains changed the world. Saying, In verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. We see here that God's sovereignty in suffering is what gave Paul's persecution its purpose. So what was that purpose? To advance the gospel. Notice the persecution is specifically is what's used to serve to advance the gospel. The kingdom of God was not advanced in spite of the persecution, in spite of the suffering, in spite of his imprisonment, but namely because 
of what had happened to him. The gospel was advanced. The advancement of Christ's kingdom is never thwarted by sufferings, circumstances, persecution, culture wars. Rather, pressure is exactly what the Lord uses to propel his kingdom forward. Or as it's once been said, the pressure of life are the hands of the potter, who is also our father. And our father's purpose for the pressure of persecution is for the advancement of his message. But how does this come to be about? Well, in the next verse, we see persecution propels God's advancement of his gospel by its testimony to the world, as it says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The gospel had become known to the royal guard by the sufferings that Paul went through. God's intent for Paul's imprisonment was so that Paul's captors would hear the gospel. That's why Paul could write in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Not because there was anything lacking in Christ's suffering to atone for sin, but because Christ had determined that his followers should suffer in order to spread the news to the world that that sin had been atoned for. Or it's been said like this, Christ died for our propitiation. Now we must die for his proclamation. We must die to tell people what he did on the cross. That's what we're called to do as believers. He dies so our sins are forgiven. Now we are called to die to let everybody know that. The gospel is advanced through our suffering when the world sees us joyfully lose everything in this world for the sake of the gospel and yet still consider ourselves to have lost nothing in comparison because he is what's enough. True Christianity is not authenticated in how a supposed Christian perseveres in times of peace and Christian utopia. No one is impressed if your faith endures when everything's going right. There's nothing to lose when everything is at peace. When all strivings cease, It's hard to tell who's really in it for Christ. But when the world looks at you suffering for the sake of his name and the advancement of his gospel message, it takes note of it. There's something different. And out of grace, people are converted. And out of wrath, some people sheer at that. They they cringe. But God's gospel advances, not because of the good times, but because of the times of peril that his people endure and joy, because Christ is what is valued. These jailers saw Paul's patient, joyous suffering and determined that there had to be something different about him. 
No one ever genuinely comes to know Christ through witnessing a Christian's worldly prosperity. But rather, when they see a believer's joy is not contingent on circumstances or trials, and that's what they saw in Paul. The word translated for Christ is in Christo. It literally means in union with Christ. It's translated elsewhere in Scripture as manifest Christ, or a lot of times through Paul's letters, his beloved phrase, in Christ, that you see especially in Ephesians chapter one. Here, it's translated for Christ because it's for the sake of his name, but it can literally be taken to mean manifest presence of Christ. Meaning, Christ was made manifest to the jailers in this suffering, so that when they saw Paul suffering, they saw a manifestation of the grace Christ had given Paul, the grace in him. They may have said something to themselves like, this Paul, he's in our shackles, yet he is freer than we are. The only thing he's bound to is this Christ he keeps telling us of. Which hearkens to the mind the verse of that great hymn which reads, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to to be, bound to be, enchained to be, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now, like a fetter, like chains, bind my wandering heart to thee. In this way, Paul truly lives up to the title he gave to himself in the first verse of this letter when he called himself a doulos, or literally a slave to Christ. Nothing could enslave Christ in this world, enslave Paul in this world, because he was already enslaved to a far greater master, namely Jesus. And it's this bondage to Christ, which propelled his gospel message forward. Just like in 2 Timothy in chapter two, when he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Which would be the legacy of Paul's influence As verse 14 goes on and tells us the other way, aside from our witness to the world, how else does our suffering contribute to the advancement of the gospel message? God uses it to propel his kingdom forward through our witness to non-believers, but also to the influence it has on other Christians around us. Verse 14 says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Suffering for the sake of the gospel not only testifies of Christ to the world, but also delivers other believers from the fear that keeps them from preaching the word boldly. Having become confident in the Lord by, not in spite of my imprisonment, but by my imprisonment. 
See, the great paradox of the Christian church is that when true believers see others harmed for the sake of Christ, it causes them to willingly and boldly throw themselves into that same harm and preaching the same good news of Jesus Christ. Like a seed buried in the earth which sprouts and grows into an apple tree giving birth to thousands and thousands of more seeds, so is a believer who's buried in suffering for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. The blood of martyrs truly is the seed of the church, and Christ's bride has always thrived in the midst of persecution, while worldly esteem has only served to dilute and corrupt the church. This has, been, this has been how the world has worked. This is how God's people have worked throughout the ages. In the early church, we saw a great revival. We saw the dispersion of the, the Jews all around because of the persecution that was going on in Jerusalem. And therefore, the gospel spread. God used it as a means to spread the word as he spread his people out. We saw a great revival. We saw, we saw the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people come to the Lord. Great revival always comes under the pressure of persecution. And then over time, as Christianity got more popular and the culture got more inundated to its values, and it then not only was not persecuted against in Rome, but it became the official Roman religion, we saw a corruption over the next several hundred years. We saw the church get comfortable. We saw there was a lack of urgency to prove that you're a disciple of Christ because there was nothing to lose for being a disciple of Christ. In fact, in the world, there was everything to gain. There was power, prestige. And we saw the Roman church fall away we saw it fall away into political schemes, power, worldly riches, success and fame among men. And Christ said of those people, they'll have their reward, and they did. But the church lost. The church lost its first love. And corruption and doctrine and ethics and morality bubbled up until the time of Reformation. And we, and we saw during the Reformation people who went back to the Scriptures. We want to go back to the Scriptures, back to the early church fathers. What did they say about Christ's word? What did they teach? Who had the ultimate authority? Whose words stand above the rest? And they, they, they were persecuted for standing on the word of God. And the Roman church slaughtering thousands of Christian martyrs, trying to bring the true gospel of grace alone by faith alone, faith alone back to the world. And it spread like wildfire during that persecution. And over the years, over the years, more persecution, more persecution, more growth, more revival, great awakenings until... I think we're back to the spot that we were before. We've gotten very comfortable. We got to the point where Christianity has influenced so much in the Western world that for a long time, you lost a lot by not claiming Christ in the world. If you wanted to be a good businessman 50 years ago, if you wanted people to esteem what you could offer to them in your community, 
you are a member of either the Methodist, Baptist, or Presbyterian church in town, right? You were a good churchman, and it would drive your business into success, right? Or, or maybe just social esteem, so people would think that you're a good person, because the culture at large thinks that Christians are good people. But no love for Christ, no care for the things of God, only care for religious piety for the sake of religious piety itself and not for the sake of the glory of God. And in that cycle, we breed false converts who are just close enough to religion that they're a million miles away from Jesus Christ. Thank the Lord that there is a remnant And as that season's fading away and persecution looks like it could be imminent, could not be, right? Only God knows. There's a purification and there's a purging of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ask people who are persecuted for the name of Christ in the Middle East, there's very few false converts there. There's very few fake Christians in China right now. Why? Because they have everything to lose for being a Christian. Everything. Social esteem. Friends, family, their jobs, their freedom, and their lives. Now what would compel somebody to still be a Christian then if it wasn't for the fact that the Spirit of God was real in their hearts. Power and persecution is the cycle of the world. Persecution purifies the church, not political prowess. The church is never pulverized by persecution, it's only purified. And ironically, in an attempt to extinguish Christ's kingdoms, kingdom, the enemy can only expand it further. Why? Because faithful suffering authenticates the gospel message, of which the apostle John calls perfect love, saying in 1 John 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That's why they were much more bold to speak the word without fear, Perfect love casts out fear. When a believer sees another believer suffer for the faith, instead of cowering in fear because they don't want that suffering, they are reminded to themselves that, no, this is real. This was real in Paul's life. This was real in this person's life. This is real in the people who are being persecuted. Therefore, it must be real in my life too. And if God is on my side, who can be against me? If I am a son of the father of the cosmos, then what in this world can kill me? Even death itself cannot spiritually kill us. Which, when plunged onto the onlooking believer into evangelistic courage as he or she remembers that they have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but one of adoption of sons, They realize if they are a child of the God of the universe, what is there to fear in life or death for the sake of spreading the Father's message to the ends of the earth? They answer nothing. 
That's why I love the song they chose to sing, Christ Alone. When I saw that on the set list this morning, oh, I was so, I was so pumped up because it says, no guilt in life. What does the gospel message do? What, is it, what does it do when someone suffers for the name of Christ, suffers to spread this message? For the believer, you're reminded that Jesus is real. Why would they be suffering for a fake Jesus? And if Jesus is real, his gospel is true. And if his gospel is true, there is no guilt in life and therefore no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. So, having become confident in the Lord, they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, Stephen is the archetypical example of this, right? You know, I originally intended to maybe use Joseph as an illustration, you know, Joseph in the Old Testament, as, you know, what others meant for evil, God meant for good in his life. But the story of Stephen embodies the fact that everything in this world did not get restored for him. It did not work out from a worldly perspective. He did not get raised to the second most powerful person in the land and every, all of his riches restored to him and, and his family reconciled to him. No, but he preached boldly in the face of the people who crucified Christ, calling them to repentance, walking them through systematically through the Old Testament, explaining to them that this Christ was the Christ that they supposedly had believed in so that they were not excused, preaching on the authority of the word of God and not his own, a clear message of condemnation to those who reject Christ's perfect love and grace and salvation and restoration to those who would repent and believe, knowing that he would die. And they drug him out past the gates outside the city and they stoned him to death. They stoned him to death. Because Stephen's heart belonged to another world, he was bold to preach the word without fear, being stoned for it, becoming the first Christian martyr. But do you know who was also present to witness Stephen's faithful suffering that day. Acts 7, starting verse 58 reads, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments. This is what you do when you wanna honor something, somebody. When, when you wanna dedicate what you've just done to somebody because this person embodies what you were doing. So they, they stoned Stephen, or those who witnessed the stoning of Stephen, went over and laid their garments down at the feet of this individual. And they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's cry out, his prayer for his enemies that day was for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle penning this letter 
who was known as Saul before he was converted, who was the enemy of God, loved persecuting Christians, loved sending out orders for them to be killed, was such a figure of turmoil to Christ's church that when they killed the first Christian, they dedicated it to this man, an enemy of God if there ever was one, is the same person who would be converted and write this letter from prison, advancing the gospel. As he's pinning this letter, the same way that he's describing how suffering for the gospel changes those around him, he was changed in that very manner by Stephen's witness. As Stephen's suffering both testified to the unsaved Saul unto his conversion, the memory also testified to the born-again Apostle Paul who was emboldened by that encounter unto his own eventual boldness to preach, suffer for, and eventually die for the gospel as well. But this pattern goes back deeper than Stephen and even further forward than Paul. As Christ, when speaking for the reason of his own sufferings in John 12, 24, says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus died and was resurrected so that many more would die to themselves and be resurrected to walk in newness of life. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. That he would be the first to taste of glorified, perfect existence post-death. The first one to defeat death did so so that he would be buried as a seed, giving fruit to many more believers to come. And in the same way, Stephen took that example and did it. And Paul took that example and did it. And generations of Christians have all forsook the worldly pleasures of this life, including physical life itself, and given it up for the shiny aluminum that it may be for the everlasting gold and riches of the glory of God and the spiritual life to live forever. And all we have to do is repent and believe. Believe that he did that. Believe that his death wasn't in vain. Believe that he took our place on the cross. That he took the wrath we justly deserve. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. And that is not a sweet little kitschy cliche. That's sinning against the God of the universe. The one who has loved you every day of your life, cared for you, been patient and long-suffering, we've sinned against him. And if God is just, he must punish sin. God is just, but he's also gracious, loving, and the justifier. So Christ takes our place on the cross 
He becomes sin who knew no sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. And he's buried like a seed and raises forth from the grave, proving he is who he said he was. Christ died so that our sins would be paid for, and we too must be willing to die in order to testify to the world that those sins have been paid for. As Christ would go on to say in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The seeds who die and are buried are those who are willing to take up this call of partaking in Christ's persecution for the sake of the gospel's advancement in the world. A true disciple is nothing less than this, but one whose death gives birth to future generations of emboldened believers who will testify to the world that Christ is enough. This is the call of a lifetime or perhaps a death time. And it is not a calling without pain and suffering, but it's also not a calling without fruit. As Paul ends his letter, he ends it with a hint toward the fruit of this gospel advancement in that, among that imperial guard. Whatever happened to his ministry strategy, his mission strategy, whatever happened, what was the fruit of the evangelism toward those imperial soldiers? He subtly hints the answer as he calls back to this fruit in the closing of his letter saying, in chapter four, as he's closing the letter, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.